This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. In the U.S., nearly 10,000 persons are hard of hearing and close to 1 million are functionally deaf. While these are astonishing numbers, the real concern is that there are countless more who are undiagnosed and therefore don't get the help they need. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Today's episode features two BYU nursing alumni, Gretchen Fors and Robin Woodbury. With three children who have suffered hearing loss, Gretchen shares her passion for raising awareness of the importance of universal newborn hearing screenings and early intervention for children with hearing loss. Our other guest, Robin, shares the sentiment for early intervention health screenings by sharing her insights as an early intervention nurse. Let's get started. We also have the opportunity today to talk with Gretchen Fors. She is a BYU nursing alumni of 2001, and she has also had an interesting journey in her own personal life. She's had three children who have uh, suffered from hearing loss, and she's played quite an instrumental role in the deaf community and building awareness about that. And so we have the privilege of talking with her today. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We're very excited. I I have Please. I have to tell you, though, I also graduated from BYU College of Nursing in 2004. Oh, <laughs> wow. All the credit with my FMP. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. That's great. Well, yeah. we love a BYU alumni through and through, so that's fantastic. <laughs> sure. We're glad that you're joining yeah. us. Well, Gretchen, as I mentioned, um, and I think the best place to start is with uh, your personal life. As I mentioned, you have three children who have suffered from hearing loss. I'm curious if you can walk us through... Um, the process of how you started to realize that, you know, because when they're babies, they can't tell you, hey, I can't hear, you know. So how did you start to, what were some of the, the indicators and maybe things to look for? Well, something interesting is actually the first, when I graduated from BYU in 2001, I worked as a labor and delivery nurse there in Utah County. And that was the very beginning of mandated hearing, like universal hearing screening mm. that they had just started. And as a labor and delivery nurse, I would n- see the little person come in. She would take the baby. She would test their hearing. And then she would tell us her little card in their bassinet if they passed or if they referred. And I had no idea why they were doing that, what was going on. I'm sure I told plenty of parents, oh, don't worry too much about it. Make sure you get the follow-up. But it's probably no big deal. It's probably fluid. And now knowing what I know now, I just cringe at all the times I probably told that to a mom trying to reassure her, but now Mm. realizing that like that universal hearing screening has changed the hearing loss community for children exponentially. So how I found out that my daughter, my oldest daughter is 16 and she was born and was pretty quickly identified with a genetic condition called Stickler syndrome. And one of the things that can happen in Stickler syndrome is that they can have hearing loss. And so she, they did hearing tests on her. She was followed closely by the auntie and she had was diagnosed with mild to moderate hearing loss right at birth, but she didn't really receive any services until she was five. And that's actually part of the story. And I think why I'm kind of passionate about helping people understand that hearing is so important to our health. It's so important, right? Like yeah. we're learning some things now, like 
hearing loss is one of the factors sometimes in Alzheimer's dementia and things that we realize that maybe, like I was, like I had told you guys before, I think we need to bring hearing back to healthcare. It's kind of been outsourced that that universal hearing screen gets sometimes it gets outsourced to a different program to follow up. But um, so she was identified at, at really at birth, but didn't actually wear hearing aids until she was in kindergarten. And a lot of that is because hearing aids aren't covered by health in, most health insurances. Mm. And so um, after BYU, we left BYU and moved to Michigan. And that's where it really the journey took off. Um, I had a hearing test done. We went to the ENT, established care while we were there. And the first thing the ENT asked me was where her hearing aids were. And I said, well, she doesn't have any. <laughs> mm. And the ENT said, what? What do you mean she doesn't have any? And I said, well, no one's ever told me she needed them. And she quickly referred us and sent us down the street. And Greta got her first set of hearing aids when she was uh, five in kindergarten. And that is because Michigan has a much more robust services for children just a different type of state. They provide services differently, but Michigan has a program to help cover hearing aids and actually our insurance paid for them in Michigan too. And so um, that's kind of where I realized, oh my goodness, there's so many kids with mild to moderate hearing loss. They're getting missed. They aren't getting the services they need. Although the audiologists can tell you that kids with mild hearing loss still have um, underperformance school, still struggle with some things, but because parents have to pay out of pocket, sometimes up to $6,000 for hearing aids. It's hard to convince a parent who has a child with mild to moderate hearing loss that they're really needed because a lot of times these kids are doing really okay. You know, they're not so far behind anybody's noticed yet. So um, so that's the journey with my oldest one. And then my other two daughters, the funny one about my second daughter is that we were still living in Michigan at the time and the school nurse called and told me, oh, your child didn't pass the hearing screening. I was just calling to follow up with you. And I said, I know she wears hearing aids because I thought they were talking about my oldest daughter, (laughs) but they were actually talking about my second child. Right. And so you would think that like the mom who already has one kid would know. And then even even more ironic, my third daughter was born also with a cleft palate. We knew she probably had it would have um, the chance of having hearing loss. But um, she'd actually passed her newborn. All of my children actually passed their newborn universal hearing screening. So she, this third child had gotten tested at six months also and passed, but at 10 months, because of her cleft palate, she was receiving some state um, parents' teacher services and things. And the um, person who visited my house said, I think you should get her hearing tested again because she was so quiet. I thought she was just a very content third child, but mm. about nine months, she got retested and she did have more significant hearing loss. So, um, so yeah, so the oldest daughter got aided at five. The second daughter, the one who didn't pass the hearing screening from the school, and she finally started wearing hearing aids now and in ninth grade. Finally, her hearing has slowly progressed the hearing loss enough that she finally realized she needed the hearing aids. Um, mm. And that's also something interesting, too. Like, she's known for at least a couple of years she could benefit from them. We've tried them before. She wore one in one ear for a while. Then she refused to wear them. And then this year she came to me and said, I think I really need them mom. And, and that's what the data shows is that actually adults too, who realize they have some something wrong with their hearing. It takes the average of seven years before they're willing to get hearing aids Wow! because it, you know, and that's, what's interesting about hearing loss. Like putting people, there's not as much of a stigma. Oh, you need, I had to work. I 
you know, old enough, I had to get glasses this year. And I didn't say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to get glasses. Right. I'm not going to wait seven years for it, right? But um, somehow I think we we really need to get over the, the stigma of hearing aids and, and all of those things and just really normalize it. Because as we do that, this will really help so many people. Oh, and then we moved, actually moved back to the state of Idaho. And when we moved back here, Idaho didn't have the services we were used to. And not only that, I realized I was going to have to pay for hearing aids again. And I actually met with my state representative and she was, um, she championed a rule change in the Idaho state legislature. So we changed the insurance rule to help cover hearing aids in Idaho for children better. So we did that about four years ago and that was a big grassroots project getting parents to come share their stories, the, the professionals about why this is so important, but getting those services earlier is better because although we use our ears to get the sound of our brain, it's really our brain that processes that sound. Yeah. And so making sure that it gets there, you know, sooner, earlier, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I can tell that you are super passionate about it. And it sounds like you've been involved in lots of opportunities to, uh, to, to help solve this problem. And, and you're mentioning it just now at the very end where because youth are at a prime state to develop and to learn and to grow, they really need to have access to all their senses right away. And just hearing the things that you've done and kind of your own experience with your own children, it's pretty clear there's not a silver bullet to this type of problem. It's not like we can just give every infant a hearing screening at birth and say, okay, they're good, you know, and then just kind of trust they'll be long. It's something that we have to probably watch out for um, throughout uh, all of the development stage and throughout life as we, as we know, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because when I was in my master's program at BYU, right, we got taught how to do a to read an audiogram, how to understand the audiogram, but it didn't really mean anything until it was personal to me, right? Like yeah. the little dots and dashes, they don't look that bad, right? <laughs> and then when you actually realize that, well, you know, there's a big difference between 10 and 40, even though the lines are pretty close on the little chart, you know, that that makes a big difference. And then um, realizing that like, yeah, there's just, if the earlier people get help, the better out, the outcome is always. Yeah. And there's definitely, I mean, and you've mentioned everyone from nurses to policymakers to parents, there's a lot of players involved in, mm -hmm. in what the solution needs to look like. What do you think a nurse's role would be, you know, maybe take, let's start with labor and delivery first. What would a labor and delivery nurse need to be aware of in order to be a part of the solution? Yeah, for sure. So that's what I think is really important is, I, I mean, I didn't get any training on how to talk to a parent about their child referring on that universal newborn hearing screen when I start started as a labor and delivery nurse in the early 2000s. And it would be interesting to know what they get taught now, but I think that that nurse needs to realize she's that first point of contact that this parent's going to need to understand that this is important to follow up. I mean, a new mom is overwhelmed, right? All these things, just trying to yeah. keep this newborn baby alive. And then all of a sudden they get all these phone calls and you need to come back in. And um, those tests can be a little bit stressful because the, you need the baby asleep. Usually newborns are good at sleeping, but sometimes, you know, they're not and timing that appointment so that you can make sure the baby's asleep and do the test. And so, but really making sure that that parent gets good follow-up is really important. And that's the other thing I like what you said before, like you, just because a child passes their newborn hearing screen doesn't mean that later in life that they're not going to have an issue with hearing. So it's interesting because, you know, most states require the, a child to go to the pediatrician and get immunizations and some things done before they get to kindergarten but a hearing test is not on that list wow and so if 
Um, the other thing a nurse can do is if they ever have a patient or uh, doing home health visits and that sometimes what we see is that parents get referred to speech therapy or other things, but they've never actually tested the child's hearing, huh, right? Like that kind of gets forgotten, even though obviously if you can't hear, you're going to have a hard time learning to speak. Um, and so just sometimes it's just sometimes we, it's an afterthought. It just isn't, you know, something we talk about all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point for sure. There has to just be a culture of constantly checking and, and following up. Um, yeah. One thing I, I am a little bit curious about, what type of solutions are there? And you've mentioned hearing aids. Is that kind of the only technology out that nurses maybe should be aware of? And when talking to patients, you know, that obviously nurse, nurses are going to say, well, your child might need hearing aids at some point in life, or are there other solutions out there as well that they should be aware of? Yeah. So, um, so hearing has in, in the the last few years, cochlear implants have become very mainstream and do really well. In fact, they have studies that show that infants who get implanted with a cochlear implant before the age of one do super well. And so wow. if a child has severe to profound hearing loss, making sure that they get that followed up and meet with the ear, nose, and throat doctor or the, the surgeons who can do that type of work and then get referred out to the correct providers after. So cochlear implants is one thing. Um, like I told you before, and cochlear implants work for sensorial neural hearing loss, and it has to be severe to profound, so really significant hearing loss. The second type of um, thing that they can do is an implant, or they're called bone-anchored hearing aids, and those are for conductive hearing loss. So conductive hearing loss is where something in the outside doesn't work well. So the eardrum, the ear bones, um, maybe the child doesn't have an ear, like then they would use bone conduction hearing aids and then miss the name hearing aid on that is a little bit controversial because there there can be ones that they wear like on a soft band but what a Baja does is what they're uh, the kind of the nickname term for them is it actually takes the sound waves and puts it onto the temporal bone in a sound wave kind of like those aftershock headphones I don't know if you've ever tried those aftershock yeah, yeah, yeah. the ones that you don't yeah. they don't go in your ears but it's on the outside right exactly so it's that same idea that it's the sound is coming through the bone on the, that's why it's called bone conduction and they actually have implants for bone conduction hearing aids too so my my two of my children have implants but they're those they're called they're samba a bone bridge they're um so they're fully implantable bajas and they they look like like a cochlear implant like it's hard when you just look at the outside it's hard some now they all look the same it's hard to tell if the child has a cochlear implant or the um, bow, bone bridge or things like that. And then, so those are for pretty significant hearing loss. And then the next one is hearing aids. And hearing aids technology has is amazing and so much better than it used to be. Um, I, you know, I talk with a lot of people with hearing aid loss and sometimes the people will tell me about the stories of wearing these, I mean, having a big speaker thing that had to sit on the desk. You know, we're way past that now. Um, hearing aids are um, digital and they have, Good programming and obviously it's not like they're a little bit unlike glasses that you don't put them on and everything sounds perfect your, your brain kind of has to get used to them for a little while but once that happens then um it, you really will realize that you were missing things and and it but just really great technologies out there for those things now and the most important thing if you have a child is that you get to have a pediatric audiologist and the pediatric audiologist that's something that's unique for pediatric children then that's not their normal ideologist Right, right. I do want to pivot a little bit to um, going back to our topic about the technology that's out there. I know that the FDA made it 
recently so that hearing aids are available uh, over the counter. Are you optimistic about that or do you have any, you know, are there things that nurses should know about with that policy change that might make the technology more accessible, but also not as high quality or what types of things should nurses know about that? Yes, I'm so glad you asked me this question. Okay, so here's the thing. I told you I needed to get glasses this year. I'm 45, so I'm perfectly in that age of needing reading glasses. And I have a brother who's an ophthalmologist. I called him one day and told him, oh my goodness, I'm sure I have a brain tumor because I keep getting the stabbing in my eye. And he said, I think you need to get an eye exam, right? <laughs> but before that, I had gone to the dollar store and bought myself. So he tells me to go to the eye doctor. And I think, oh, I'll just go to the dollar store and get cheaters, like the little readers, right? Because obviously, like, that should solve my problem. I'm 45. I probably just need readers at this point. And then finally, I decide that this is probably outside of my wheelhouse. I need to go to the ophthalmologist. So I show up at the ophthalmologist. And he does a whole vision exam on me. And I actually have, actually, I'm um, far, no, nearsighted. I was, I don't need readers yet, but I was, and I have kind of a complicated prescription because I have astigmatism. Mm. And so I think we need to think about these over the counter. So what my point about that is, is that I started somewhere that was cheap and easy thinking I could solve my own problem, but it really, I needed some, a professional, someone who could really get me what I needed. And now I have glasses and they're great. And I, don't have headaches anymore and I can see clearly and things are moving forward. Well, kind of the same thing with these over-the-counter hearing aids. I love that they're going to help decrease the cost. Like they've done studies that show that number one reason adults don't get hearing aids is because of the cost. A good pair of hearing aids costs between $2,000 and $6,000 for a set. Um, most Costco's and you know in the United States have places where you can get hearing aids. The issue with that is that you're getting fitted by a hearing aid fitter and most, or, I mean, you can check some Costco's actually do have audiologists. A lot of them just have a hearing aid fitter, which is someone who is a high school graduate who took a class for two weeks and who can fit hearing aids. And so uh, the reason I bring that up is then, then now they're going to have over-the-counter hearing aids, right? So I guess the whole point of the story about my eyes is if you start with, if you know, think you have hearing loss and you start with the um, over-the-counter hearing aids and it's not quite right, it might be worth, you know, moving up the system and getting, going to the audiologist. Because the other thing is a lot of, I mean, a lot of seniors should tell me, well, I got hearing aids, but they didn't work. And I, I like to remind people, my audiologist has a doctorate degree in audiology for a reason. And that just like my complicated vision prescription, some people have really complicated situations where they need an expert to check that. So sometimes if you go to Costco and meet with the hearing aid fitter, they can vary in their degrees of experience and background, and maybe you'll get a great fit and you saved yourself some money on your hearing aids. Um, but if that doesn't work, you know, hearing is really important and it might be worth that visit to the audiologist. So I guess, I guess we need to think about, you know, like if, but on the other hand, I have friends here 45 who go to the dollar store and buy cheater glasses and that's all they need. And it's a great fit for them. So right. for some people, Going and getting over-the-counter hearing aids is going to be a great fit for them and solve their needs. But if it doesn't, just don't stop there. There's other resources available. Definitely. Well, and that's kind of consistent with our theme so far where there might not be a silver bullet, but there's valuable options. And it sounds like this you know, policy shift allowing over-the-counter hearing aids, well, it's not the silver bullet. I mean, it will definitely help a lot of people, but not everyone necessarily. Yeah. And it might be the door into which people realize, okay, I really do need to visit the audiologist because this option didn't work. And actually, um, the other advice I would give is that if you do get those over-the-counter hearing aids and they don't 
that you don't notice any improvement, make sure when you buy them that there's a return policy and you understand it. Because otherwise, um, I think that's one of the worries with seniors is that as they become more accessible, um, they might get sold something that doesn't actually help them, right? And so yeah. make sure if it doesn't work for you, then you can um, have a way to return them. Yeah. Well, Gretchen, that's awesome. I really thank you for taking the time to talk to us about not only your personal life, but even some of your more formal experiences with helping the deaf community and uh, helping individuals kind of cope with this. It sounds like there's uh, some great resources out there. I don't want to let you go, though, without you referencing some of the resources that you provide. You mentioned it earlier um, in our interview as well that you have a podcast. A lot of our listeners uh, will have patients or families or maybe even their own their own lives. They'll have children who are deaf. Um, would you mind just sharing a little bit about your podcast and the resources that you provide uh, for those types of individuals that might need it? Yeah, for sure. So the, my podcast is called Hearing Mama's Tribe. Like I told you, um, sometimes hearing moms is not always necessarily a nice word, but we are in kind of a world of our own, right? Like all of a sudden we are most hearing moms, like I told you, 90% of them are moms are hearing, and then we're kind of thrust in this new world of navigating it. And so what I do on my podcast is I interview my friends and colleagues and things like that who have had the same experience because um, just before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to go to something called, it was a conference about holding space and it, they brought in audiology students and speech therapy students and teachers of the deaf. And there's a whole big community. And what I realized is there's power in our stories because a lot of providers see people at one small snippet, right? They're doing one thing at a time with that person, but being able to see the whole story makes such a big difference in seeing where people are coming from. And so and then the other thing is I've been really blessed to be very involved in this community and get to know great people. And I have come to appreciate the moms that I've spent time with and the moms that have been mentors for me. And so coming out of the pandemic, I realized that like we used to get together, we used to have some of these things, but now the way we access information has changed. And some people don't want to actually, I'm, you know, I have a lot of people say, hey, can you call and talk to my mom about this? Or I have a sister who needs some help, but sometimes they don't necessarily actually want have a conversation yet they're a little bit nervous or scared but we can access all this information now through the miracle of a podcast right so right. a lot of the interviews on my podcast are parents and their journeys with their children with hearing loss and then also professionals who serve these children so pediatric audiologists speech language therapists um teachers of the deaf and anybody who really serves this community so that people can hear their stories and you know i really want to remind moms especially that they're their child's champion and there there's so many resources out there for these kids and but it can be very overwhelming and so if you just you know take a deep breath and figure out what you want you can take those steps along the way to make sure that your children do have a great outcome and that this just becomes part of their story but it's not the major part of their story i like that this idea that yeah. this is a problem we need to identify it we need to treat it uh the quicker we do that the quicker you can get on and and live uh, I don't want to say a normal life, but a life that's equivalent to those that are around you. Right. Yeah. Like my, most people don't, when you, if you were to meet my 16 year old in public, you probably would be shocked to find out that she is, you know, under the definition of death. Like, in fact, most people are yeah. because she has had the opportunity to have, you know, high, she also had, um, progressive hearing loss. So she did start out hearing so that it's helpful, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, don't lose hope. There's a lot of people out there who are willing to help. And if you're a provider, if you you know work in a pediatric office or 
you work for the ENT or you end up in, you know, maternal health, like all of these nurses have the opportunity to access people at a time and are a school nurse, right? Where this information might be helpful to them. So I actually really see the nurse as being the key to solving this problem a little bit because I feel like right now they've made the mom be the um, case manager, right? She deals with the audiologist. She deals with the ENT. She deals with the speech language pathologist. She deals with the teachers of the deaf that come from the school of the deaf or the state. And um, I really feel like that the nurse is in the middle and the nurse is the one who can really help and give the mom some of these tools to just, you know, just be on the right path and keep moving forward and not get so overwhelmed. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's definitely a continuum of care there that the moms are often responsible for, but nurses can definitely play a big role in as well. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, sharing your insights with us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. BYU Continuing Education is looking for paid health coordinators for its summer for the Strength of Youth Conferences. This is an excellent opportunity for students to use their nursing experience and be a part of a spiritually enlightening experience for Latter-day Saint youth. Visit fsyemployment.byu.edu for more information on how you can become an FSY health coordinator. On our show today, we have Robin Woodbury, who is an early intervention nurse and a BYU alumna. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to start off by asking what originally made you decide to become a nurse? Well, that's always a good question. <laughs> I have a sister who has lots of handicaps, so I was exposed to nursing really on in my early on in my life. And I think that inspired me to kind of give back to all the great care that she had received when I was growing up. Why did you decide to come to BYU instead of any other nursing school? Um, as I considered my options for college, um, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a nurse and the BYU program, um, their high pass rates, as well as just the environment of BYU um, really attracted me. Did you work as an early intervention nurse right out of BYU or um, did you do something else right right after? I didn't. I, I worked in behavioral health care at a therapeutic boarding school for about six years, seven years prior to my current position. Gotcha. And what was your capstone as a BYU, you know, six semester nursing student? Yeah. So when I did my capstone, they actually had a lot of um, staffing crises, I guess, at a lot of the hospitals. And so although historically we've been told most um, capstone students got their first or second choice, a lot of us in my semester ended up in our third or not even on our list of choices. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of in a hustle to even get us placed just because a lot of the hospitals weren't taking interns. Um, so I didn't have behavioral health care listed at all on my choices, but that's where I ended up for my capstone. And at first I felt pretty apprehensive about that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, this is not what I planned on. Um, but it was such a great blessing in disguise because I think I really found my niche, even though I hadn't really in clinical rotations been drawn to that prior. Um, so I'd probably say to other students who in your capstone, either you're not sure what you want to do, or you end up in a place that you weren't expecting that kind of be open to that. Cause I think that a lot of really great experiences can occur even when it's not what you were expecting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As an early intervention nurse, um, what does that title entail? What does your job entail? What does a day look like in your life? 
Yeah. So early intervention is actually a national program all across the United States. So no matter where you live, there will be an early intervention program that services your area. It is a federal program that works with students who are zero to three years old when they have any sort of developmental delay. So if they're not walking on time, talking on time, or even eating well, or if they're coming out of the NICU with a feeding tube, things like that. Um, so we actually visit people in their homes. Um, our referrals are often from pediatrician offices or from hospitals directly. Um, and all our services are either extremely discounted or free through the federal government. Um, so that's one thing I really like that we I feel like I'm part of a um, really charitable cause I guess, mm -hmm. um, without having to deal with insurances or um, other financial stressors. All of our services are available to anyone um, who might need them, regardless of any of those sort of barriers. Um, so a lot of what I do, it's federally mandated that every child receive a thorough physical examination with screenings upon entry to our program. So I do a vision screening, a hearing check. I gather a really intensive health history, really to try and discover is there any medical reason that we're not priorly aware of that could be causing their developmental delay. So they might have a tongue tie or hearing loss, and that might be why they're not talking on time. Or is there any sort of cerebral palsy or other sort of muscular abnormalities that we could get evaluated, um, and that's be why they're not walking. So that's kind of my role in the early intervention program. When you do these um, evaluations, is it so it, is it pre-diagnosis then or um, if, if there is a diagnosis, you're you're looking at them to see if there's anything to diagnose. Is that right? And yeah, it's really both. So sometimes we know coming in that they felt their hearing test in the hospital, like their newborn hearing check. Um and so they're coming to our program. We know they probably have some sort of hearing loss, but then I also help the parents navigate the medical system and gain a correct diagnosis. Um, sometimes they're diagnosed later on like cerebral palsy. We know they have that diagnosis, but I represent, since we work on a huge team with occupational therapists, speech therapists, developmental specialists, people who major in child development in college, um, I'll just, uh, we just have a lot of different specialists. And so I kind of represent the medical side. And so then when they do come with a diagnosis that we're aware of, genetic disorder, anything like that, I do research on it, talk with the family, and then I present that to the team as saying, all right, we know they have this diagnosis. What does that look like for development? What realistic goals can we set for this child? So we're not underselling them, but also not trying to put them to do things that their medical diagnosis might prevent them from doing. Yeah. So um, it, it kind of sounds like you act as a patient advocate for for your patient to the to the team that's working with them. Yeah, actually, the word I want to use during this podcast. I feel like um, patient advocacy is a huge part of my job, um, and I thought to that back to that a lot. And when I was in nursing school, how we talk about the main role of the nurse is to be a patient advocate, and I think that's what I love so much about my current position. It's not so much about tasks as far as like getting medications passed and wound dressings changed. It's more about a holistic view of the patient um, in their context of their family, in their context of the community. And how do I increase their development or their, you can even say overall health in those contexts and help the family make connections as well as offer a lot of emotional support. We have a lot of families coming in 
who no one really wants their child to be in early intervention, right? No one yeah. wants their child to be developmentally delayed. And so, and that can be really rattling. Um, as a parent myself, I could see how that would be extremely difficult. And so even just offering a lot of hope to families that, you know, we can hopefully get them caught up or we can help them achieve their highest level of functioning. We're here for you, here to support you. We're not even charging you. <laughs> we're, we're a free service. And so that's what I do really enjoy about my current position, patient advocacy, as you mentioned. So it, it, that's something you enjoy about the job, but what's something maybe that um, surprised you that was not your favorite aspect of your job? Um, as I've gone back together at like nursing reunions with my friends from my um, cohort in the nursing program, um, I know my patients for years, usually like two or three, sometimes we get them from birth all the way until they're three years old. And the average length of people in our program is six months or longer. So I know that some of my like nursing friends said, oh gosh, I can never do that. I can never know patients for that long. That sounds emotionally exhausting. <laughs> you know. Um, I, and I, I could tough, definitely see, cause I have some friends that are like ICU nurses where there it's a lot more about tasks and getting things accomplished and, and getting making sure to keep people breathing and you know really complicated tubes and um i think that for me i think that's actually one of the great parts of the job is that i get to know my patients and to um, be a part of a really um, important part in their lives when they're just born or you know just a tiny baby um, as well as being a part of their family's lives and um, helping them but i don't think that's for everyone for sure What's something that you've learned about the healer's art doing this job? Um, I think it's not always about cure. <laughs> if that makes sense. And when I think I graduated from nursing school, I was like, we're going to make everybody better, you know, like 100%. And I think with chronic illnesses and a lot of things in life, there isn't necessarily a cure. But I don't think healing has to be a cure. I hope that makes sense. I think healing can happen emotionally or just have an instilled sense of hope. And their child diagnosis, even if they come in with a really, oh, excuse me, they come in with a really devastating diagnosis, like severe brain trauma from birth or something. But I think there's a lot of healing that can still occur. And that is, I think, all Christ-like qualities that caught, like provide that healing, not so much like, here's a medicine, now you're all better <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. I think um, looking at a patient holistically means that yeah, maybe maybe there's healing that happens mentally or emotionally or spiritually even. Um, and maybe the physical isn't completely cured, but yeah, there can definitely be healing without that. Yeah, I agree. So you may not be able to share really specific details, but was there a moment when you were working with one of these children or their families that made you realize that you you were in the right place? I think that there's been quite a few families that you just end up saying the right thing at the right time, you know, um, and you can see then their demeanor just change and how they are approaching their child or their situation. Or you see that small glimmer of like, okay, like I can do this. Um, and so I've, I can, I can think of several different situations where that has happened. And I was like, okay, it was worth coming to work today. <laughs> you know, Like this, made me give me energy to to continue my career instead of like getting in the dull drums of like the day-to-day -day and the stresses of like I get this charted and I gotta do xyz I was like no like I was meant to be in that situation with that family at that time so. 
That's amazing. Yeah. So if we have nursing students who want to get involved in this field, um, what's something that you wish that you had known or maybe just some advice for them? Yeah. So I think one unique thing that I've had in my nursing career is I've actually never worked in like on a hospital floor. Um, And I know coming out of nursing school, I was kind of given the advice a lot of like, well, you have to work in the hospital for a few years or you're not like a real nurse, quote, quote. Um, and I think nursing is so much broader than that, or at least that's what I've discovered during my career, um, that although I think hospital nursing is great and it definitely has its place, um, I think for students, I think it would have been helpful for me to hear that nursing is multifaceted. Um, and I think that although the majority of our rotations and our training in nursing school and our clinicals are in hospital systems, um, to keep your mind open to other opportunities in nursing, because um, a lot of careers in nursing never involve a hospital per se. And for some people, the hospital um, system and how hospitals run and nursing work in a hospital might not actually be their best fit. And I had a few friends coming out of nursing school being like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I even chose the right career because I didn't like hardly any of, or I didn't feel called to, I should maybe say, any of my clinical rotations in the hospital. And I have found extreme fulfillment in maybe those non-traditional nursing jobs because um, I think that there's a different personality is drawn to those. And I think that they're very much needed and they do a great work in our community and with families. Yeah. Nursing is for sure way more diverse than even nursing students give it credit for sometimes. And, and, and yeah, that's why <laughs> that's, that's what this podcast is for. Um, we even, we interviewed, um, a nurse investigator and that has nothing to do with like working in the hospital and I I think I think some students have in their mind an idea of what nursing looks like and it's you know bedside care in a hospital but um it's so much more than that yeah yeah I definitely agree because when I was in nursing school I was like oh my gosh like I didn't I didn't dislike my clinical rotations but I kind of had maybe because my experience with my sister had mostly been outpatient (laughs) I was kind of like, oh, is this maybe it is not quite what I expected. And then as I've graduated and started my career, I've been able to discover a whole new realm of nursing that I feel like in nursing school, I had a very narrow exposure to. Um, if students want to learn more about early intervention nursing, um, where can they go to learn more? Or what's a resource that they can go to? Um, so I know that through my work, you can just go to the pro, just even Google Provo Early Intervention. You'll find our phone number. And we're very happy to have students shadow, even if it's just for a day, just to kind of get exposure of like, oh, what is this like? You know, <laughs> um, And I think that any, if you call any early intervention program, and, and like, again, we're, it's a federal program. So no matter where you are, there is a program that services your area. Um, and you can talk to the people who work there because it is a little bit different because the role of the nurse can kind of change based on the organization you're working for. And so um, I think that'd be a great way to find out more about it or even just what early intervention is because a lot of people aren't aware that this program exists unless their child has been enrolled. <laughs> um, and so I think that that was even really valuable and just as a resource for um, people around you as people, you know, if someone says, oh, my kid's not talking and they feel distressed, there's, there are resources and help out there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing and for coming on our show today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. You guys have a good rest of your day. You too.
Wow, Liza, I really loved that interview with Robin. I thought it was really interesting how she had the opportunity to see patients for a really long period of time and really kind of be a hub uh, in the continuum of a care that a patient might receive. I feel like a lot of time, maybe more conventional nursing professions, you only get to see a patient in one context, whether that's like the ICU or bedside, but you don't get to see them for very long. But in her position, she got to see them for an amazing amount of time. I'm sure she got really close to those patients. Yeah. And I really loved how she talked about being an advocate for the patient. Um, I think a lot of times that's the nurse's role is to be there for the patient and advocate to the physician or in her case, the social worker or whoever is helping in that child's case. Um, I think that's really cool that she gets to do that. Yeah, you definitely have the full interest of the patients uh, in mind as a early intervention nurse. Speaking of being a good advocate, it reminds me of Gretchen's interview a little bit. I was touched about how she used her personal experiences with her own kids who were hard of hearing to become an advocate, not only for her kids and her own family, but the deaf community as a whole across the country and helping them get access to the resources that they need to be uh, functioning and participating members of society. Yeah, and I think it's really cool that she took it to um, a political level, trying to make it so early intervention hearing screenings are available universally for children. I think that's really amazing of her. Absolutely. As she mentioned, there's a lot of work to do, but I think she's the person to do it. So it should be exciting. Speaking of one of the topics she talked about, I actually saw um, some over-the-counter hearing aids in Walmart the other day. So they are starting to come out, which is very exciting. I think I'm going to need those after the Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all we have for you guys this week. Make sure to keep your volume down, protect your ears. And don't forget to tune in next week for another awesome episode. We'll see you then. 